Last week, as you know, we introduced Ephesians with some background, and we looked at the first two verses. This morning, we find ourselves in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. Um, I was talking to some people before the service, and they wondered why I had so much energy and excitement today, and then it struck one of them, oh, you must be very excited about today's passage, and I am. He followed it up by either calling this passage very dense or calling me dense. I don't know yet. I'll find out later from him. Um, But he is right if he was talking about the passage for sure, because this is a very dense passage with a lot of information. We are obviously not going to be able to dive into the depth of each theme, and so we take a little bit more of an aerial approach today. Uh, All of our sermons and uh, services are available on YouTube. You can go back and watch them for clarity, or if I speak too fast, or if you want to go deeper, uh, you can certainly do that. But if you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we're going to read as we go today, because we're kind of going to look mainly verse by verse, okay? Um, But the way that this is structured as kind of a doxology is uh, like a Jewish baraka, which is a blessing or thanksgiving in where God is praised for his character, his deeds, and his transcendent nature. So as we read this, it kind of sets the stage for the rest of Ephesians. And in the Greek, if you were to look at verses 3 through 14 as we have them, it's actually one long sentence containing 202 words. The punctuation, the verse assignments that you see in your Bible in front of you weren't there. This was one long sentence. And it's important to understand that because it helps us understand that there's a bigger picture here. That this is all Paul just building on one thing after another and it all flows together. What Paul is doing here as the author is he's building this beautiful picture of many of the different ins and outs of redemption. And these themes will carry throughout the rest of Ephesians. Themes like election and adoption and redemption and salvation and so much more. And so there is a lot of depth here. And although it is one long sentence, we're going to see today that there are three clear thoughts presented. And so those will be the three points, the main points of the sermon. As I always do, there's many sub points to those three main points. Uh, And while this, today's feel is going to be more um, studious than normal, there won't be a lot of time for application, but Within being studious with these uh, verses today, we are going to remember that all of these truths are reason for us to celebrate. And so I want you to keep in mind that we are going to have reasons to celebrate the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our time today. So it's not going to be a comprehensive study on these topics, but the very first one that we see right away in verses 3 through 6 is that we can celebrate that the Father chose you. We can celebrate, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you can celebrate that it was the Father who chose you. And right away in verse 3, we see praise. What a great way to start, right? Praise the Lord. And so verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Now, if I just read that and you were able to read along in your head without following on the screen, it means that you were up to the assignment this week and you read the entire book of Ephesians. My challenge to you last week was read all six chapters of Ephesians every single week until we're done with this study. And it will become so familiar with you that by the end, I'm going to stop putting verses on the screen because you'll know them. But please go ahead and do that reading each week. But verse 3 tells us that we should praise God. It identifies as God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Father, as God, he should be recognized and respected as the source of all blessing. So if you've ever been blessed, which you have, who was the reason that you were blessed? Where did it come from? It came from God. And as the source of all blessing, God is the object of all of our praise. Everything that we do in worship and praise is directed at God the Father because he is the source of all blessing. But it's bigger than that. And so Paul keeps going in verse 3 because he gives us two prepositional phrases. One is in Christ. The other is in the heavens. There can be two different ways to read the rest of verse 3. The most natural way to read it is not that these prepositional phrases are parallel to each other, but that they modify each other. So basically, instead of saying that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and he's blessed us in Christ, and he's blessed us in the heavens, it would read more naturally to say that God has blessed believers with every spiritual blessing. Those spiritual blessings are located in heaven and they come through Christ. So Paul is giving credit where credit is due, as you will see in all of our reading today. He likes to do that. He likes to remind us where things come from and who's responsible. So God is responsible for every spiritual blessing which is located in heaven and they come through Christ. And that in the heavens makes sense to understand it that way because now we know that these blessings are spiritual in nature. And it makes sense because God and Christ dwell in the heavenly realms, not the earthly realms. And so that's where these blessings take place. You'll notice it also says in Christ. That's a central theme that we're going to see today, especially in the rest of these verses. So unity with Christ is another thing that you could jot kind of on the side of your margins or your notes. In Christ is something we're going to see a lot of. So basically to summarize, God delivers these spiritual blessings through Christ and God is the one responsible for all the blessings. It's his will to bless his people. And he does that blessing through Christ. And so we praise him for it. We celebrate that the Father has chose us or chosen us. But it gets a little bit sticky here in verse 4. Because verse 4 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love. Now, in case you're wondering why that in love is up there, we'll get to that in a minute. Ignore that for right this moment. We'll get there. But let's go back to the beginning where it says he chose us. This gets a little bit tricky, and maybe this is our first stumbling block of our study. Basically, what we need to understand about this is that God selected or caused those who would be holy and blameless before him. This is what so many call election. That fits with his sovereignty and power, that God is in charge of everything, right? We all can agree that God is the one who does all and is in all and is through all and he deserves all of the credit and the glory. And so it fits with our understanding of who God is. <clears throat> 
but it doesn't fit with our human understanding. How could this be possible? that God did this, because we have to be able to, in our minds, have this harmony between God is sovereign, but I can decide to do something. How do, we, how do those things coexist? And so there's kind of this mystery, because we like to understand how things work, and if we can't fully wrap our brains around it, then something must be wrong with the thing, because I don't fully understand it. But my challenge to you is that when we encounter things that are outside of our understanding in relation to God, it should not be a tripping block, a stumbling block. What it should be is a cause for worship because there's mystery surrounding God. God is the one who is bigger than we could ever comprehend. We saw it this morning in our report from Uganda. Who would have imagined that 750 people, was anyone praying for a number like that? We all prayed for great things to happen, but who among us said that, yes, that was going to be the number that God used as a result of that trip? So God does wonderful, big things, and they're mysterious to us. And if we were to keep reading, it even says that it happened before the foundation of the world. Who can fathom before the foundation of the world? We need something tangible. We can think about something not existing, but where did it exist if there was no world? And so it kind of is this mysterious idea in our minds. But my challenge to you is when we encounter some things that maybe don't make sense about God, it pushes you to your knees to worship him. Because it tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so my challenge is when you find a mystery about God, we should start worshiping. But this term election, let's talk about that. There's two main thoughts on this, and I'm going to try to summarize these positions knowing that a summary could never do it justice. I know that the depth that each one of these positions uh, defends its case is a lifetime worth of defending of information and of study. And so a summary is only probably going to upset some of you on either side. Um, and that's okay. We should struggle with this idea because remember, it's a mystery. But what does it mean that he chose us? There's two different camps on this. One is a term called Calvinism. It teaches that the believer has nothing to do with his own salvation, and the faith that it takes to believe is even a gift from God. It would be like a collection of individuals that's fully chosen and known by God, and it's his doing, and it's nothing from man's efforts. And because it has nothing to do with man's efforts and it's all God, it would be called unconditional election. There's another thought on this, and it's called Arminianism. Many people say they stand uh, in opposition to one another. Uh, this is just another camp of thinking. And what it does is it emphasizes God's choosing, and it gives him the credit in the choosing. But the way they describe it is that he used his sovereign foreknowledge to look ahead and know who would choose him, and therefore that group is the elect. So they would change a little bit and say that it's a non-individual collection that's elected by God, but it's man's choice to follow. And so because there's man playing a role involved in that, they would call it conditional election because God is the one doing it, but he knows ahead of time because of man's choice. And so it's hard to summarize, as you can tell, but those are the two main uh, opposing views, if you will. But let's get back to the scriptures and what they tell us, and then you can draw your own conclusions. 
We know from the context and the rest of Scripture that God is sovereign over all things. But we also know that man needs to genuinely come to Christ. In our minds, those two things stand in opposition. In the mind of God and his perfection and his ways, they are in harmony. And so when we discover a mystery that might not make sense to our minds, we worship him because he is greater than anything that we could imagine. So we worship as a result of this. Russell Moore says the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. That's how he summarizes it. But we have to remember the invitation is for everyone. And so if you are in Christ, you can praise him because he drew you to him. It's his doing. Remember, he provides all spiritual blessing and choosing you is a wonderful blessing. Now, your minds may be going deeper and deeper than what we're going to get today. And maybe you even found yourself at a point of saying, okay, so if God chose us, then why did the Uganda team go to Uganda? What was the purpose in evangelism? And so there are reasons to think that way, but they're wrong. Evangelism is always the right option because we don't know all of the details of how God chose, who God chose. And so evangelism is necessary because election, what it should do is not stop us from telling people about Jesus. It should give us hope that there are other people that God has chosen that we don't know and the very message that we carry of Jesus may be the, re the exact message that that person needs to hear coming from me. And so God can use all of us. It should give us hope. It's not up to our presentation that is so beautiful and wonderful because then what that would mean is that people are following us because we speak wonderfully. And we don't want to have our own followers. We want people to be drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our presentation doesn't matter. God is the one who does all of these things to draw people. So tell everyone about Jesus. And as you can see from Pastor Derek's report, from Tom and Tina's report, God is faithful and he draws people to himself. Let's get back to the text after I just tickled your ears with all of that depth that you might go into this week on your own, which is great. We want, we want that further study. But for today, let's go back to the text, and it says this little phrase, in him. Remember, Christ is the one in whom election takes place. So just like God is the one who is doing all of the blessing and Christ is the instrument through whom God blesses, it's the same idea here. And so Paul again reminds us it's in him. But the bigger context of verses 3 through 6 is that we're supposed to celebrate the work that the Father has done in choosing us. And Paul stresses when this happened. Notice when he says, before the foundation of the world. This theme that's carried out in these verses here is the idea of God's grace. And when Paul stresses before the foundation of the world, what he's trying to get the reader to understand is that God is gracious in what he has done. And by grace, not because of what we have done to earn his choosing, but because of God's grace, he throws in there before the foundation of the world, which means God's electing was not and could not be influenced by anything I did. I did not impress God and cause him to go, oh, he's pretty great, I want him as part of my family. So Paul is making sure we understand that grace is the theme here. So that's why he tells us before the foundation of the world. It was no decision of man. It was not an act of man. It was not the responsibility of man because it was done before man, before the foundation of the world. 
Okay, deep breath. We also know from the rest of our reading, if you read all of Ephesians, that both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man seem to be themes in Ephesians. So here's how I would summarize it. God, in his perfect nature and his perfect way, has chosen before the foundation of the world who would follow him. And he also placed the responsibility of faith, which is a gift from God, on the individual to decide. How does all of that make sense? I don't fully know, which is an awesome mystery because our God is so great and so mighty and so powerful. I can trust that it is him who knows what he's doing and I can just worship him because I don't want a God that I can fully fathom because then he would be just like you and me. So let's praise him for his many mysteries. But let's look at why this happened. What does it say? Remember when I said at the very beginning to ignore the end of the verse where in love seemed to be the beginning of a new sentence? It said this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's a period. And then it says in love like it's starting a brand new verse or verse 5 comes soon after. Let's go back to the beginning when I introduced that this was one long sentence. You remember that? This punctuation wasn't there. This was 202 words of just one building upon building upon building of Paul and his many thoughts that he couldn't contain himself and he just went for it in this doxology. Well, it could go with verse 4, that in love. It could go with verse 5, but why separate any of it? Let's look at why this would make sense to have in verse 4. God wants his elected people to stand holy and blameless before him because he loves us, right? Doesn't love fit into his grace and his wanting to call people to be his own family? Of course he does it in love. And when we think about standing before him, when you hear that word before him, you might be thinking about judgment, some people might automatically go, I have to stand before God and I have to hold account for everything that I've ever done that is a scary thing. And yes, it is incredibly scary. However, if you are part of the family of God, you get to stand there pure and blameless because he loves you and because it happened through Jesus Christ. What a blessing that we can praise the Father for. We should be erupting in this idea that there is nothing that I have done or could do to deserve what God has given me in Jesus Christ, and he did it because he loves me. But that verse isn't over. And I know you might be looking at the time and going, wow, we're going to be here a long time. You are right. The Packers are done. You don't have to worry about getting home to a game. But that verse continues because it gives us even more depth. As if we don't have enough reason to already praise the Father, we look at the rest of this uh, little section in verse 5. It says, he predestined us. We already know he predestined us. We dealt with that earlier when it said he chose us. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of his will. So, to give us a better understanding of adoption, let's look at the end of that verse. It says, as sons through Jesus. Ladies, you're part of this. I'll tell you that in a minute. But it says, as sons through Jesus. Well, you remember that Paul was writing this at a time where the Roman government was in control. In fact, he was under house arrest, probably in Rome. And what would happen is in Roman law, when you adopted those children had the exact same rights and privileges as naturally born children. 
You might know the greatest example, one of the greatest examples about this is when Julius Caesar adopted Octavius Thurinus, whom you know as Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. And so what we see by that example is that just like a naturally born child, Caesar Augustus got all the privileges and the rights of an adopted son, a naturally born son. So listen to this as it applies to God. By God's adoption through Jesus, we have membership to the divine family of God with the same privileges as the sonship that the time of Paul was writing about. This is not a statement for men excluding women. It's to relate what is known about adoption in the Roman world and show the greater picture of God's adoption. As someone who comes to Jesus Christ, you are saved and you are adopted with the same privileges and rights as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen, right? What a beautiful reason to praise the Father that we are adopted and Christ shares the privileges with the new sons and the new daughters who have joined him in union with him. And why did any of this happen? Look at the end of verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. Some translations say the good pleasure of his will, which I really like because we still have that in love that's kind of floating around in there, right? Is it the end of verse 4? Does it belong with verse 5? It could be either. If you translate it as the good pleasure of his will, then it captures that idea of love. He adopts us into his family with love and with his good pleasure. What a beautiful statement. So why did any of this happen? Verse 6. What is the purpose? We have reason to praise him. We see that there is adoption into his family. What is the purpose? Verse 6 tells us, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Simply put, while we get many blessings from adoption into God's family, what's the reason? It's for the praise of God's grace. So adoption isn't the end point. Praising God for who he is and his wonderful grace is the end point. You see, the appropriate and accurate response to those who have been adopted into his family and have experienced his grace is praise. It's not sarcasm, it's not negativity, it's not pouting, it's not complaining. The natural reaction of recognizing what Paul is telling us here, that you have been adopted into the divine family of God, is that you praise the grace of God. And just like Paul does, he gives another give credit where credit is due, and he inserts the idea that it's in the beloved. God's grace is expressed through Jesus. So with so much good reason... And with a great foundation to read the rest of these verses, we praise the Father and we celebrate the fact that he chose us. And now Paul starts to shift. He shifts slightly and starts to recognize the work of the Son. He's already given credit because he kept saying, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, through him. He did all of that in those few verses that we read. But now we're going to see that we can celebrate that the Son has redeemed you. We see again, in him is how verse 7 starts, so it's that union with Christ is still this continued theme. But then the verse continues. It says, You have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
I want you to think about what you know about the Exodus and how Israel was, were, was in slavery for so long and how God freed the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. And not just freed them, but he reclaimed a people that were his to begin with. They were restored. They were redeemed to their posture as God's people. And now it says, in Christ, anyone who believes is restored to right posture with God. But not only that, because we see a reference to blood here. Through his blood, right? Through Jesus' blood. We remember blood from the Exodus as well because it was smeared on the doorpost, not as a sacrifice for sins. It didn't take away sins, but what it did is it protected people from the judgment of God. And it says, through his blood, we have forgiveness. Forgiveness. And so the same way that the blood of Christ protected his people from the judgment of God, now we see this connection between the blood of Jesus on the cross and what does the verse say? The forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus' death dealt with the problem of sin. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't just some horrific event that happened. It was an event that happened because of the grace of God given to us so that we could have forgiveness of sins because he loves us and he wants us to stand pure and blameless before him on that day of judgment when he looks at us and he says, You are my son. You are my daughter because of the blood of Jesus so we can celebrate because we have redemption through Jesus Christ. And why did any of this happen? The verse tells us. According to the riches of his grace. Previous verses told us that the whole point of adoption was so that we would not proclaim how great adoption is. It would be for us to proclaim how great the grace of God is because he's the one who adopted us through Jesus. And so why did this occur? According to the riches of his grace grace through him is the way that we know grace redemption is not is an act of grace in jesus because he is a generous and giving god and what does he do with all of this grace look at verse 8 which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight god's grace is rich and he pours it out abundantly his grace comes through Christ and it's lavished in wisdom and insight. And so just like in wisdom and insight, it was shown in God's planning and designing and executing creation, that was intentional. His grace is also intentional. It's not an afterthought. It's not a reaction to something. God is overly generous with grace as a giving God and it's purposeful because he loves us. So Paul continues with verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Earlier I had used the word mystery to talk about how it's really hard to know the fullness of that term election that we found earlier in verse 4. But here Paul uses it differently. 
This word mystery is not to imply that God is hiding things about himself, keeping them secret, keeping them a mystery. Actually, if we were to read this, we would see that the opposite is true. What Paul is trying to tell us is that what was once a mystery and unknowable has now been revealed. So what is the mystery? What is his plan? We read that the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will unite all things in heaven and on earth. So this means what was totally broken and lost because of sin as it entered the world through Adam will be restored in Jesus Christ. And that word unite is best translated as sum up. So with that in mind, we see that Jesus is the capstone of all of the elements of the universe. And in him, and only in him, will we ever find our purpose, our explanation, and we will only ever submit to him for any of this to make sense. It is all done in Christ Jesus. And so again, with good reason, not only do we praise the Father and celebrate that he has chosen us, but we praise the Son and we celebrate that he has redeemed us. And now Paul closes this section that we're dealing with today, and he recognizes the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to praise the Father, we're going to praise the Son, and now we figure out how we can praise this Holy Spirit. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As you read this, that word obtained is best thought of as been selected, if you read it that way, because that sits in line with our understanding that this is an act of grace of God, not an act of ours. And so if you think that you have obtained something because of the way that you have behaved or the person that you are, you've obtained it from God, that's not the right way to read that. You have been selected for an inheritance before the foundation of the world, and it was God who did the selecting. That word inheritance could mean two different things. It means either you were made an inheritance or you have received an inheritance. Both can be found in Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.20 talks about that we were God's possession. 1 Peter 1.3-4 talks that we have an inheritance. And so both of those truths are worthy of praise. We are God's possession because of his love and his grace that has been lavished on us through Jesus. And through Jesus, we have a glorious inheritance. Paul continues as he draws this part to a close, this doxology, this one long sentence that I feel like I've been talking in one long sentence because there's so much about God and depth and truth and things to praise him about. But he says in verses 12 in the beginning of 13, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Now that word or that phrase, we who were the first, sounds like it could be Paul gloating, right? Well, those of us who believed in him first. That's not what Paul is saying. There is a way to interpret what he's saying as an exclusive statement, meaning that maybe he's referring to Jewish Christians who came to Jesus before the Gentiles did. But there's also another way to interpret that as an inclusive statement, which I prefer, that it would mean the generation at the time of Paul, the believers that were 
there at the time of Paul, which included Jew and Gentile. And the reason that I like to interpret it as an inclusive statement is because it seems to best fit with what we know to be true about the rest of Ephesians, that Paul is going to talk about that there's one gospel, there's one family of God, and it includes both Jew and Gentile. It also fits with the universal invite for all to come to Jesus. So I would summarize this way, all who hope in Christ are in him, whether Jew or Gentile. And why is the purpose? What is the purpose? It tells us, to the praise of his glory. So this again shows us the purpose. It's not our own success that we are praising. It's not anything that we did because we cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves presentable before God. It is to the praise of his glory. And so everyone who is found in him because of Jesus should praise him. But with all these blessings and statements of in him, how can you be sure? How can you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in God's family, that you have been adopted as a son and daughter? How can you know that your eternity is sealed and it can never be taken away from you? Well, Scripture tells us, verse 13, that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And then again, to the praise of his glory. Three words that I want you to see from this as you understand it and we close. The word sealed. A seal was a common way to show ownership or even authorship. A cow would be branded with a seal showing to whom it belongs. An envelope would be sealed with a wax ring imprint showing who the author of the letter was. And so we, as being found in him, are sealed by the owner himself and our author with his Holy Spirit. The word promised is in that verse. This is not an indication that the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, and so Paul was still saying, oh, that promised Holy Spirit. No, it was recognizing the fulfillment of what Jesus said, that the Spirit will come, and he has come, and he was promised, he is here, and he is the very presence in your life, sealing you in membership of God's family. But more than sealing, as the verse said, because the word guarantee is in that verse. The Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance. Think of it as a down payment, not because the Holy Spirit is incomplete or partial like a down payment would represent, but because the glory has yet to come and it has not yet been fully realized. It's a deposit of the fullness to come. So in order to show that his promise is true, he has given the Holy Spirit. His very spirit present in your life, reminding you, showing you that you can be assured of your salvation. And so we can celebrate that the Holy Spirit assures us of our salvation, that we have this incredible future inheritance because we are members of God's divine family because of Jesus Christ, because it's all through him. And what is the purpose of any of this truth? What is this supposed to do in our lives? Because there was a lot of depth here and there may be you leaving with a lot of lack of understanding of how much implication there is. And so what is the final point that Paul tells us? What is the final thing that I want you to do as we leave here today? It tells us at the end of the verse, to the praise of his glory. 
This appears one more time showing us that it's not for our own promotion. It's not for our pride. The purpose of all of this is for his glory. And so I want you to recognize that he has done all the work and that you can praise him for it. And so today, let's celebrate that the Father has chosen you, that the Son has redeemed you, and that the Spirit assures you of your future inheritance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time today. I thank you for the much depth that there is in your word, that your word can't be contained to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. It can't be contained to a full day, a full week, a full year, or a lifetime. That there is so much about you, God, that we just don't even fathom yet. But every piece, every nugget of information, every truth that is reinforced from your word through your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our understanding, no matter how small that little bit of information may be, it is with the purpose of praising you. It is for your glory. And so today, here in this place, if you are a member of the divine family of God because of Jesus Christ, would you declare in this final song that it is because of Christ alone that any of this happened, and it is for his glory. And if any of this is new, that you didn't realize that you have to stand in judgment before God, you didn't realize that there would one day be an answer for your behavior, for your sin, and that you are lost and hopeless without Christ, then come forward in this last song. Give your life to Jesus. Don't be limited to the 750 that came in Uganda. Make one happen right here today because you realize that it isn't about your doing. It's about what Jesus Christ has already done. Come forward and there'll be pastors and elders here to pray with you and celebrate and welcome you into the divine family of God. Thank you, Father, for the